My name's Mark Sheehan, uh, I'm the Oxford BRC Ethics Fellow. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, financial inducements in research, more specifically undue inducements. And these kinds of issues, ethical issues with these things come about in situations where researchers conducting a piece of research want to pay participants for their participation. And these are quite, uh, these sorts of payments are quite ethically dubious in certain, or taken to be ethically dubious in certain contexts. And so what I would like to do in the next few minutes is talk a little bit about what these undue inducements might be and why we might think that there's an ethical problem with paying people to participate in research. Um, I should add that I, in line with a lot of people I think in the, in the bioethics literature are quite sceptical about the wrongness of paying people to participate in research, although I think there's probably most people have limits to whether they think it's wrong and what the extent of the wrong. But I will, I mean, a main focus in, in what I want to say is directed against trying to understand what people take to be wrong about paying people to, to participate in research. And I think in certain respects, it's sort of slightly surprising in a couple of cases. But anyway, so the, the main question is what is an undue inducement and what is the wrong that's associated with its being undue? Why should we think that it's wrong to pay people to participate in research? What I'm not concerned with is reimbursement. So I'm not talking about cases where somebody is just being compensated for what it is that sort of inconvenienced or their bus fare or whatever. I'm actually interested in cases where the payment is supposed to be taken as part of the cost-benefit calculation that people might do in being in the research. So, as it were, cases where the financial incentive, the payment, actually enters into the cost-benefit calculation, the overall risk-benefit profile of research. The reason somebody's doing this piece of research is because they're getting paid and because the money that they're getting is worth more to them than the potential risks associated with being involved in the research. Um, there are four different sorts of things that I want to talk about an attempt to answer this question about what is the un what makes an inducement an undue inducement and problem morally problematic because of it. The first one is consent and related to consent and voluntariness. The second one is risks and their risks and their appreciation. And the third one is altruism and commercialization. And finally, the role of background inequalities in our understanding of these kinds of cases. So starting with consent and voluntariness, it's quite the most common, I think reason for thinking that paying people to participate in research is morally problematic um, is related to the claim that somehow it undermines their ability to consent. So the thought is that paying people to participate in research undermines the freedom, the voluntariness with which people are able to um, consent to that piece of research. So somehow they can't make the kind of decision that they would make if they weren't being paid and it changes the nature of the permission that they grant. The question, of course, is how, how exactly is consent undermined by the payment? And so I'll look at very briefly at three different ways of thinking that. The first way is that the consent undermines the payment by limiting or reducing the person's autonomy. Uh, secondly, that by accepting the payment or by offering the payment, we're thereby compromising the person's voluntariness. Or thirdly, by offering the consent, we are undermining the person's consent because the payment, the, the promise of payment, um, constitutes a concert, co constitutes coercion.
So thinking about autonomy and freedom, I mean, obviously, there's an obvious connection between consent and autonomy and paying people, and that is we typically think that that the reason somebody has for doing any, any particular thing, in particular participating in research, is related to their the information that they're given and the sorts of constraints that are put on um, the way in what, in what they're able to choose. So the, the way in which this, this claim is supposed to work is that somehow the money makes, makes the person less able to decide. Um, one of the influential papers in this area is by Wilkinson and Moore, which is in bioethics in 1997, and they are very sceptical about this claim, as am I, that consent is undermined and indeed that autonomy is undermined by paying people to participate in research. And their line, their sort of one of their main points is that consent is about autonomy rather than about freedom. Sorry, consent protects against protects autonomy rather than protecting freedom. And their example for, to this of this is a person who is in the position of having to have having to choose to have life life saving surgery. So a case where the patient, the only alternative to the surgery is death. Now that looks like a case where um, the person is not free to choose otherwise than having the surgery. But we would still, as Wilkinson and Moore suggest, we would still think that it's possible to autonomously to choose to have the surgery. So the idea here is that instead of so what the payment does, if anything, is it undermines the freedom of the person to choose not to participate in the research rather than undermining their autonomy. That is, rather than undermining their ability to choose and so undermining their consent. And the standard kinds of examples that come up in this context involving payment and involving money not undermining autonomy and not undermining consent are people who choose to do dangerous work for money or indeed people who just choose to work generally. And these are the kinds of cases where we think that somehow that the payment influences their decision and makes their, makes their decision to go to work or to go to do dangerous work plausible and reasonable but it doesn't undermine their ability to consent or their ability to make decisions about what they do. This is a perfectly normal sort of, sort of response. What I think these considerations show is that the ability and the kind of decision that we take ourselves to be making and take ourselves to be ordinarily able to make as autonomous adults separates out from the, kind of the content of the, certain, of the decision in certain kinds of key cases. So this is based on what is ostensibly a sort of fairly thin account of autonomy, where thinking of autonomy is just an ability to be able, an ability to choose that involves plugging in values in any particular values, and then, and that's not something that autonomy has. Which values get get plugged in is not something that has anything to do with the autonomy itself, and so it doesn't affect insofar as the decision is a consequence of a particular set of values. That's not something that autonomy can speak to. We might think that there's a richer notion of autonomy that we can have in place here, um, and I'm sympathetic to that. The trouble with having a richer notion and having a thicker set of values that are involved in autonomy, so making it more than just procedural, is that it's hard to see how this could rule out only financial payments in research. So I think the point about autonomy and freedom here stands. That is, I think that financial incentives and financial payments to participate in research can't undermine autonomy. So they don't make the person who's being paid unable to decide what to do. Um, I think that if there is a problem, it's, it's elsewhere. 
So the second thing I was going to talk about is whether or not these kinds of financial claims, financial payments, undermine the consent by compromising voluntariness. So the thought here is that we're not, we don't choose voluntarily when we're paid, when, when there's money involved. Um, and I think part of the problem is it doesn't really help us too much if you think about this. And um, Applebaum, in a recent 2009 paper, um, have it given an account of what they take to be voluntariness, and they say that it's, quote, the presence of influences does not mean that the decision is not voluntary. The decision is involuntary only if it's subject to a particular type of influence that is external, intentional, illegitimate, and causally linked to the choice of the research subject. Now, what's important about this definition is not all the details. For, for here, the, de the details are not important. What's important is that in the definition, and in the definition of involuntary is already an account of illegitimacy which doesn't really help us in the context of trying to come up with an account of undueness. The I claim that by suggesting that, that involuntariness is defined as Applebaum defined, that they haven't given us any account of what would make undue inducement undue, just as they haven't given us an account of what makes an influence illegitimate. We think it's illegitimate and we think it's wrong because it's illegitimate, but we don't know what makes it wrong and what makes it illegitimate. The last thing about consent and voluntariness is to talk about coercion. I mean, you might think that someone, somehow someone is coerced into participating in research if they're paid, and particularly if they're paid enough. Um, somehow the, the offer of payment forces somebody to do it. The first thing to know about coercion is that it's usually thought of, rather than adding to options, it's usually thought of as restricting options. So that the sort of paradigm case of physical, physical coercion, where you think of somebody being tied or being made to do something in physical, physical terms, the idea there and what makes it coercion is that the person has no option or has, has very, very limited options and that the coercion involves the restriction of options rather than anything else. But of course we might have coercive offers and again Wilkinson and Moore talk about coercive offers and how we might think of some offer, offers rather than restriction of options as being coercive and the idea they give us is that an offer is coercive where the offerer the person making the offer plays a role in limiting the options available to the offeree. So the example that Wilkinson and Moore give is of somebody poisoning somebody and then only offering the antidote on condition that they get paid a particular amount of money. Or I think Wilkinson and Moore's example is that they hand over their stamp collection. The idea there is that the person who is making the offer of the antidote to the poison has limited the options available to the offeree by, in fact, giving, poisoning them in the first place. So there's a thought. That's supposed to be an example of a coercive offer. Now, in the case of research, it just doesn't look like that's the case. It doesn't look like the case that the researcher has played a sort of direct and immediate role in limiting the options of the person who's the participant, who's the potential participant. So it doesn't look like, on the face of it, as though paying participants paying somebody to be in research constitutes a coercive offer, just if we accept that off that account of what it is for something to be a coercive offer, which looks reasonably plausible. So having thought about those three possibilities, that sort of deals, I think, with consent. And I think the overall point of the consent and voluntariness point, overall, overall point of the consent and voluntariness discussion is to just to try to rule out the idea that what's wrong with paying people to participate in research is somehow tied to the ability of the person who's being made the offer to be able to give the proper kind of consent.
The next thing we might think is, is we might think that somehow this is tied to risks and their appreciation of and the appreciation of risk. So we might think that somehow this is not about consent, but instead it's about the kinds of things that people are prepared to do for money. And we think somehow we might also think that the money that they get offered somehow undermines their ability to appreciate the risks involved. And two people have written on this, one in response to Wilkinson and Moore, is Sam McNeil, and he writes, um, in talking about an example involving his daughter, my concern is not whether her consent was invalidated by the inducement. My concern was that the inducement of a considerable sum of money would expose my daughter to additional and unnecessary risks. And Ezekiel Emanuel writes, quote, undue inducement is when we offer people goods to assume clearly excessive and unreasonable risks, end quote. And both of these cases have something to do with the risks that we're worried about with inducement, the risks, the risks that people are prepared to take on that we're worried about. But there's a question about how we're going to understand this as an objection to undue inducements. And there's a couple of different ways we can understand this worry. So the first thing we might think that's being got at here is that the problem with these kinds of cases is that the nature and the extent of the risks of the harms involved is too great. So something about the kinds of research that involves the financial inducements, somehow it's somehow the harms involved there are too great. The second thing we might think is we might think that the participant, something about the money means that the participant will get the risk-benefit calculation wrong. So because money's involved, they just make mistakes about the, the, the risk-benefit calculation and get, they think that there's more benefit than there really is. Finally, we might think that the financial inducement encourages careless decision-making. So it encourages people to make mistakes that they shouldn't really do, to make decisions that they wouldn't really make, to get the risk-benefit calculation wrong. In the first case, that is, if we think that the nature and the extent of the harm involved is too great, that looks like it's got nothing to do with the money. I mean, presumably, irrespective of whether there's money involved, the harm is either too great or not, or, or, or acceptable. So it can't, that can't be an explanation of why the inducement is a problem. Secondly, we might think that in the, in the case of thinking the participant will get the risk-benefit calculation wrong, and I think this is the most interesting kind of case, and certainly I think most likely what McNeil and Emmanuel are after. The thought that this is the thought that participant will get the risk-benefit calculation wrong because the benefits involve financial payment. But again, this involves a particular view of what counts as getting it right or getting it wrong. So we have to have a view that says that there's one risk-benefit calculation and that, and that there's an objective account of it. And that that's what's, um, that's what's mistaken here. But again, it doesn't look like there's anything specifically about the financial payment that's doing the work here. It's about trying to come up with an objective account of the risk-benefit calculation. So ordinarily, we think that people can have different values and prioritise things differently and they take on risks that they're prepared to take on for their perceived benefits and vice versa, not take on things. So if we, can have an, if we have an account of what the objective risk-benefit calculation is and that somebody's more likely to get it wrong, it seems this applies to more cases than just the undue inducement cases, in which case we don't have an explanation of what's wrong about paying people to participate in research. We have a more general problem about understanding risk-benefit calculations. The final way of understanding risks and their appreciation is thinking about somehow the money making people be careless. Um, and I think this actually reduces to the previous option. Indeed, Emmanuel talks about short term over long term. People prioritising the short term over the long term, so not, say, appreciating 
the long-term risks of participating in this research, even though they're going to get the short-term gain from the money. But again, this presumes that there is a there's non-careless decision-making, that we have an objective handle on it, that we know exactly what counts, and that there's always a, a reason for thinking that we should prioritise the long-term over the short-term. Some people just decide that they care more about the short-term than the long-term. We don't necessarily have an objective way of saying what that is. So I think that really reduces to the second one. We, unless we have some account, an objective account of what counts as when to value the long-term over the short-term and what's careless decision-making and when it's appropriate. We won't have an account of what's going wrong here, and particularly even if we did, we would have one that generalises beyond inducements and so not give us the kind of explanation that we want. Uh, the third thing I was going to talk about is altruism and commercialism. Some people claim that altruism in research, that, that what's important about that financial incentives undermine is this idea that people should participate in research as a gift, as it were, as a... Uh, they should participate in research altruistically. There's something special about research such that it's it involves giving selflessly. Um, but it's unclear why that's the case. It's unclear why anybody would think that research should require gifts or donations. I mean, what I really think is going on here is people think somehow that there are inappropriate norms being introduced into research by the money and that somehow there are norms associated with participating in healthcare research that are undermined by the payment. And this relates to a more general question about commodification and what Michael Sandel's called the degradation objection. If we think that's right, the right picture here is that there are particular norms associated with participating in research and that they'll be undermined in various ways by introducing financial incentives and financial norms. Then there's a particular task that involved here and that is to show that there are these norms and that they will be outweighed or undermined by the norms involved in payment. And I think the difficulty with this is actually showing that there's any particular way of doing participating in the activity of medical research that does involve these sorts of norms that we should preserve in any way and that, that are undermined by the payment. I think that's a difficult task. I'm not sure it's one that is easily achievable, at least separable from the from the next point, which is one of the, which is the final point here, talking about background inequalities and other things going on that are broader than the research context that really under, help explain why we think that undue inducements, that financial payments in research are problematic. And that's the thought that, um, there are two kinds of thoughts here. One, one worry is a sort of social justice worry where we think that, that if we pay people to participate in research, the kinds of people that will be involved, and there are lots of examples of this, that will get involved will be the people who have less money and are prepared to make these trade-offs, these extreme trade-offs for ris risks for the financial benefits. One of the things about notice about this, to notice about this, is that the underlying interpretation of this worry is that the extreme need, what's going on is that we think it's terrible that people should be in a position where this particular amount of money is attractive to them, such that they're prepared to do this. So if we imagine a case where somebody might lose lose sight in one eye or something, and we think of how bad a position somebody would have to be in for the payment that would be involved in participating to be worth that, we think isn't it terrible that somebody would be in that position. Now, interestingly about these background inequalities, they're not the fault of the researcher. So they're not those inequalities are not something that the researcher can do anything about. But we might still think that the researchers should not trade on these inequalities so that we might understand our objection to financial payment in research to inappropriately trade on the idea 
that society is unequal and that the researcher, by painting the subject, is sort of trading on those inequalities in order to get the research done. And of course, the other factor in this is that we think that research is a sort of overall, some sort of service or some sort of contributor to society. And so to trade on inequalities that society is responsible for in order to get something that will in the end benefit future patients looks like it's slightly problematic. So what are the consequences for these discussions for thinking about the acceptability of paying people to participate in research? Um, what I've tried to do is give, in this last point, is try to give some general explanation of why we might think it's wrong to pay people to participate in research. I think it's not properly understood as undermining consent. Um, I think it's not that the wrongness of paying people to participate in research is not properly understood as a misappreciation of the risks involved or an undermining of the proper motives for participation. Instead, I think the story to tell about this is that it's a complicated story about the relationship between the researcher and society and the participant who will find the payments involved in the research um, attractive. And so I think what we balk at is we balk at having somebody being their social position and what they find attractive being used for the service of future patients and for the use of future good of society. In terms of particular sorts of cases, I mean, what this tells in favour of, I think, is researchers being sensitive to the, sort, the, the role that financial incentives will play in recruitment. It might be that the researcher should play some part and make some sorts of gestures towards rectifying inequalities if their particular research involves people who are particularly poor or particularly not particularly well off, involving education, making sure that consent is, is appropriate um, and that the harm is minimalised. These practical suggestions don't provide any sort of definite answer, I think, to whether it's wrong or to be ruled out or not, but I think it's something to be taken on a sort of case-by-case -case basis without a necessary view that it's wrong, just an awareness of the kinds of things that might make us feel slightly uneasy.